Technical production for The Aaron Rupar Show is provided by Studio Americana, an audiobook and podcast production company based in Minneapolis, serving clients nationwide. I really don't think that we ought to hang our political hopes on this. I don't think this one is about the election. I think this one is about democracy, right? You, you cannot have a coup attempt that goes unpunished. We have to do this not because of the election. We have to do this because that's what democracy requires. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Aaron Rupar Show. Today, I have a great and very timely guest in Liz Dye. Uh, Liz is a legal expert and co-host of the Opening Arguments podcast, who has actually been contributing in recent weeks to public notice. And uh, she's written a lot about Trump's legal peril for the newsletter and some pieces that have been very well received by my readers. And so it was very uh, timely to have her on the podcast today. I actually booked her a couple weeks ago before we had any idea that a new indictment uh, in the January 6th case would drop last night, but it did. And so our conversation unpacks that indictment. We talk about um, the charges that Trump faces in detail, some interesting scenes uh, from the indictment, some anecdotes from there, uh, passages of note, things like that. So whether you've read the indictment or haven't, I think there will be... Uh, parts of our conversation that will interest you and that will add to your understanding of what's going on with the January 6th related case. Before we get to that conversation, I just want to mention that happily I have hit the threshold now for YouTube monetization, which means that I am able to offer some perks to people who sign up. Uh, if you're curious for all the details, go to my YouTube page. But to, to suffice it to say that I will be offering early access to new shows, to subscribers, to my YouTube page. Uh, I'll be posting the footage of these interviews Wednesday evening, uh, late Wednesday afternoon, somewhere in there before the audio only uh, version drops the next day on Thursday. Uh, and so if you're interested, if you want to help support the show, that's a good way to do it and check out my YouTube page for all of those details. But without further ado today, let's get to my conversation with Liz. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Aaron Rupar Show. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Liz Dye. Liz is the co-host of the Opening Arguments podcast, which uh, goes pretty deep on legal matters that are at the center of our politics these days. And so if you enjoy this conversation that she and I have today, I highly recommend you check out Opening Arguments. And Liz has also written a couple very well received, uh, actually, I think a few now newsletter pieces for public notice, including one just earlier this week on the superseding indictment and kind of the clown show that the document details in terms of what Trump was doing and his minions to try and cover up the uh, purloining of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. So Liz, thank you for taking a little bit of time this morning to talk. Oh, thanks very much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, and the timing worked out great for this. Uh, we had talked a little bit last month about possibly doing a podcast. And you had some mm -hmm. scheduling issues. And then, as it turns out, we scheduled this for uh, Wednesday, August 2nd. And as it turned out, there was a new indictment that dropped on the 1st. So the, yeah. the timing couldn't have worked out better. Yes, yes. Although we were we were excited to talk about the documents indictment, which is which is funnier <laughs> than this one. This one's I mean, this one's really deep and 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 has implications for our democracy. I, the the documents indictment is funnier with the, you know, the chuckleheads in the tunnel with the flashlights. That That's always fun. Maybe we'll talk about that. Yeah, time. sure. And if, if people do want to read her piece, it was the uh, the Monday edition of the newsletter. So be sure to check out public notice to get that. Uh, but let's start with talking specifically, you know, here with the the uh, indictment pertaining to January 6th with the charges that Trump is facing. Um, there are a range of them. 
Mm-hmm. And um, so let's kind of tick through just to begin with to kind of set the stage. Uh, what specific charges Trump is facing here? Yeah. OK, so so this is a really methodical indictment. Um, you know, as I said, it's not as sexy, but it's got it's got seven. You know, it talks about the seven states and there's six co-conspirators and five stages and four counts and three conspiracies and like, you know, one defendant who is definitely up a tree. Um, so you <laughs> It you it's really got three conspiracies that are laid out in four charges. So count one is a conspiracy to defraud the United States. That's 18 USC section 371. And I'm not going to read you the statute, but I'll read you the description of the way that it's framed in the indictment. It's described as a conspiracy to defraud the United States by using dishonesty, fraud, and deceit to impair, obstruct, and defeat the lawful federal government function by which the results of the president election are collected, counted, and certified by the federal government, right? So mm-hmm. that's that's interrupting the certification of the election, right? Count two is a conspiracy to obstruct the joint session of Congress. That's 18 U.S.C. 1512K. Um, and that's described as a conspiracy to corruptly obstruct and impede the January 6th congressional proceeding, at which the collected results of the presidential election are counted and certified it's the certification proceedings. Um, and count three is obstruction of the joint session of Congress. That's it's 18 U.S.C. 1512C. So if count count two was the conspiracy, count three is the actually doing it, because as we all remember, they succeeded in obstructing Congress. Right. It, you know, they had to they all had to stop that that. That certification. And then count four is kind of the most interesting, and it was unexpected. It's conspiracy against rights. That's 18 USC section 241. So that's that's kind of it's one of the provisions of what's what were known as the KKK Act. And so they were an, enact, enacted during Reconstruction to ensure that Black Americans would have the right to vote. And so I guess it's it's sort of stereotypically or traditionally thought of as something which was um, which was a law to sort of stop the KKK from, you know, not letting black people access the polls at all. But here it's being applied as as because Trump really what the heart of Trump's plan was, was to stop millions of votes in the swing state from being counted. And that that is, in fact, really kind of exactly in line with the traditional application of this statute. Uh, and and let's be clear, he was very much trying to stop votes from being counted in traditionally black areas, right? You know, it's it's not a coincidence that when Rudy Giuliani got up there, he said, well, it's Philadelphia and it's Atlanta and it's Milwaukee. It's He was talking about taking away the votes of people in black urban areas, right? Not So mm-hmm. I, I, there, this is not being applied as a racial statute, but let's be clear that that is what they were trying to do. And so it's it's kind of appropriate that this KKK yeah. statute is being being used here. And there, there are details in the indictment about how uh, and this was this was known in the January 6th uh, committee as well. Some of the hearings that were held where, you know, Rudy tried to pin some of this purported fraud mm-hmm. in Georgia, particularly on these two black election workers. And right. the indictment gets into how they were flooded with threats and uh, basically had to go into hiding after this. And that that seemed pretty targeted as well in a similar way to portray these two black women as being, you know, kind of thugs who were stealing the election. Um, and yeah. so there is kind of that that racial, at least with that part of it, um, mm-hmm. undercurrent. And then, as you mentioned, the cities that were kind of defamed in a way were uh, largely black population centers right. where, you know, these allegations of fraud were being made. Right. And that's 
look, it's clearly not an accident, right? That they they said these are minorities that are stealing your votes. And and Rudy Giuliani was so grossly racist about them. And I'm sure that we'll get into that later. But he was talking about they he said that they were passing around. Um, I think his his words were they passed around a USB drive as if it were a vial of cocaine or heroin. Like they just passed each other a roll of mints. It was a mother and daughter who were you know working in Atlanta to tabulate the votes. And I mean we all know their names. They testified in the you know the January sixth hearings in Congress. I don't, I, I feel really ambivalent since you bring it up about using their names because um, mm-hmm. one of the mother testified about how she said, I've lost my name. When people say my name in public, I'm terrified. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there is a definite human cost to what what went on here. Um, I mean, I think we all know that and it's easier to kind of know that with this one than with the documents indictment. But yeah. it, it is very clear that many people you know, and it, look, the, there is technically there is a death penalty possibility for this for this KKK statute in if someone loses their life. And and indeed, Ashley Babbitt did lose her life during this during this thing. And and other officers, you know, who who were who were involved in that lost their lives to suicide or, you know, heart attack or other things. So so there was a loss of life associated with this. Yeah. So. Yeah, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but it's related to this. Um, you know, and I, I would very much encourage people if they have not read the indictment to do so. It's a pretty brisk 45 pages. I mean, I think you'll mm-hmm. find that it's pretty it's it's not written like a legal document where it's really dry. It's written more in kind of a narrative fashion. Mm-hmm. And there are stages to it, you know, in terms of the plan that Trump and his co-conspirators tried to enact to essentially steal the election, which began with pressuring state officials such as Brad Raffensperger down in Georgia. Uh, the fake elector scheme was the second part of it in concert with state legislatures. Third was trying to pressure the Department of Justice. Fourth was trying to pressure Pence to go along with the fake elector scheme. And then the last resort, number five, <clears throat> was essentially resorting to street violence. And we saw some mm-hmm. of that publicly on January 6th, uh, which I actually, as I was reading the indictment, um, had occasion to go back and revisit Giuliani, for instance, on January 6th, when he gave that speech calling for trial by combat, um, which I think right. put it very plainly. And that comment is also mentioned in the the indictment. But I remember clipping that and it's still on Twitter that day, uh, Giuliani giving that speech to the crowd that was assembled um, nearby the Capitol before the march occurred. But the question that I have, which is a little bit of a sidebar, is, you know, you read this indictment and certainly with both Giuliani and Eastman in particular, who's one of the other co-conspirators who is not named, but it's very clear who it is. How are these people when you read this? I mean, it seems pretty clear that they should be charged with crimes uh, based on some of their activities. Um, you know, they're co-conspirators, which sounds bad, but they're not indicted and there could be charges that come later. But, you know, what's your thought on why uh, these guys haven't been charged? Um, is there you know, some sort of greater strategy here, maybe trying to get them to cooperate or something like that? Or, or what's going on with that? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I, I maybe we should just name the co-conspirators. Co-conspirator sure. one is Rudy Giuliani. Co-conspirator two described as an attorney who devised and attempted to implement a strategy to leverage the vice president's ceremonial role overseeing the certification proceeding to obstruct the certification. That's clearly Eastman. Uh, co-conspirator three is an attorney who you know flogged unfounded claims and whom the whom Trump described as crazy. We know that that's Sidney Powell from reporting mostly, I think, at Rolling Stone. Um, co-conspirator four is the Justice Department official. So that's that's clearly Jeff Clark. Co-conspirator five is described as an attorney who assisted in devising and attempting to implement a plan to submit fraudulent slates of presidential electors to obstruct the certi- certification proceeding. That's an attorney based in Wisconsin named Ken Cheesebro. And I guess probably you and I who follow this stuff super closely kind of knew that. Um, but 
we'll, we'll probably talk about him maybe in a few minutes. He's he's been he's going to be a, an important kind of witness in this. Um, and he seems to me to be smart enough to save himself. Co-conspirator six is probably this guy named Mike Roman, who was in charge of a lot of the ground game for the campaign, including the fake electors scheme and was instrumental in assembling the fake electors. He was a former oppo researcher for the Koch brothers. Um, but it, it could be Boris Epstein. Uh, I, it's not, it's not a hundred percent clear which one that is, but so you're talking about why aren't these people charged? They're described throughout this and particularly Rudy Giuliani features, um, prominently in this document. Uh, it's not, it's not a hundred percent clear. They, there might be sealed indictments against them. This might be kind of a move to get them to flip. It's, it seemed pretty clear that in the Florida case, the first indictment, um, was an attempt to get Dolivera to flip, um, or De Oliveira. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce his name. And then when that didn't work, he he got charged too. Uh, and, and he still might flip if he knows what's good for him. Um, but, but here it's not, it's not clear whether some of these people might be smart enough to flip and not get charged. Um, because they, I think that they definitely could get charged. I, the, the utility of having somebody like Sidney Powell flip, um, and testify against Trump or Rudy Giuliani flip and testify against Trump is maybe limited because, uh, they're, <laughs> Uh, you they're know, they're not, they're not crazy. I think the technical exactly. term is as so, even Trump acknowledges in the in the indictment that uh, right, Powell sounds right. crazy. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think interestingly, Powell really probably does believe it. And and the indictment makes it clear that Trump didn't believe it. And maybe we'll right. we'll get into that. Um, and, and and to to Jack Smith's credit, this is a really systematic indictment. So he goes through state by state and says, here are the things that Trump said. Here are the times when all of the people in his orbit told him, no, you're, Mr. President, none of that is true. And here's him repeating it again and again. Yeah. And and there are times behind the scenes where he acknowledges that what he's saying is not true mm -hmm. um, and just continues to do it. I think it does a really good job at, at depicting how Trump was told over and over again by people who were not Sidney Powell. The things that Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani are telling you are not true. Mm -hmm. What do we make of the fact that, you know, it seemed conspicuous by his absence was any reference to Mark Meadows, who played mm -hmm. obviously a pretty central role during the uh, committee hearings for the January 6th committee in terms of a lot of his aides were some of the key witnesses that testified. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at the time, Meadows was chief of staff, so he was very involved in these efforts to overturn the election after uh, you know, November 3rd, leading into January 6th. Um, so, yeah, is, is there anything to be gleaned by that? Or is that maybe just, you know, did, what kind of alarm bells, if any, does that does that sound for you? So there's been reporting in The Guardian and elsewhere that Meadows kind of has some kind of deal to either take a lesser charge or to to flip or to to testify against Trump. Um, and he is really central to all of these things. He's central to every piece of this. So there are some references to him calling down to Georgia. And 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 this is one of the places where people told Trump the things that you're saying aren't true. So Meadows called down to Cobb County, Georgia, and kind of actually observed they were doing a recount in Cobb County, Georgia. And he told Trump, this is fine. If there's fraud, these are good people. They're going to find it. And then the next day, Trump said these are terrible people and they're not even looking. Um, and, and so that's just another example of Trump kind of flogging false claims. Uh, um, and, and we can talk about why that's going to matter for his defense in a minute. Uh, but so it's not clear to me whether Meadows has some kind of a deal, but he is not named as a co-conspirator. Right. And he 
he has been, he was ordered to testify. He was one of the ones that tried to exert executive privilege in the U.S. District Court in D.C. And Judge Beryl Howell said, no, not even close. So um, he was ordered to kind of testify fully and not assert executive privilege. One of mm-hmm. one of many people, and including a lot of the lawyers in Trump's orbit, like the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, and his deputy, Pat Philbin, and Eric Hirschman, and, and lawyers like that. Mm. Yeah, this might seem like kind of an obvious uh, question or a point to make, but in case people, you know, obviously you're well versed in the legalities here. Why does the indictment spend so much time demonstrating that many of the claims Trump was making publicly, whether on Twitter, in speeches that he gave about election fraud at this time? Um, wh- why does it spend so much time demonstrating that Trump knew those claims were false in the sense that he was being told by people around him that they were false repeatedly, you know, and he was still making these false claims? Why is that important for uh, this case? Well, so you have to kind of, there's a willfulness requirement. There is an intent requirement. And also Trump, I mean, we can talk about the defenses. Trump has already kind of made a claim or or staked his claim. He's made it clear that he intends to present what's called an advice of counsel defense. And so that is, you're saying, I did it, but my attorney told me that it was legal. And so I, I have a defense for the for the requirement of, of willfulness, right? And and um, so he has said he has said in multiple kind of posts on Truth Social and in in his um, in in his his campaign's announcement of this yesterday, he said, you know, I did everything that I did with multiple lawyers telling me it was fine. And he's talked for, cited, for example, having been on the call with Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia. Um, where he said, I need you to find, you know, 11,780 votes because that's one more than we have because we won this state. And of course, he didn't win this state, but he was on the phone with multiple lawyers, including Cleta Mitchell, um, who who was a was a subpoenaed witness here and in Georgia and um, and Kurt Olson and some some other lawyers. And he he's saying, well, these lawyers told me it was fine. And so it was fine. Um, and that's he's and. At Rolling Stone, Aswin Subsang and Adam Ronsley have reported that he plans to assert this advice of counsel defense. Um, but so for that, you have to kind of have reasonably relied on your lawyers. And he's basically saying, well, Rudy told me it was fine. The problem is that all of these other lawyers told him it was not fine. And so yeah. part of the what what Jack Smith is doing here is establishing that Rudy, that that relying on Rudy was not reasonable when all of these other people said, what you are saying is not correct. So there's multiple references to the mm-hmm. acting attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen, saying to Trump, no, the thing that you have said is wrong. The thing that you said is not true. And it is not a legitimate thing to do. Right. So mm-hmm. Trump can't say, well, I just thought I was fighting fraud when when his own attorney general said we have investigated. There is no fraud in Georgia, as Brad Raffensperger told him repeatedly on that call. He said, you are getting bad information, Mr. President. The problem is that the people who are telling you this are telling you lies. Yeah. Yeah. And I mentioned this earlier, but there's a, a very um, kind of compelling example of this in the indictment where uh, Trump apparently privately acknowledged during a meeting that a lot of what Sidney Powell was saying sounded crazy. And then mm-hmm. the next day was on Twitter amplifying her claim. So it wasn't even as though um, you know he was getting bad advice that he believed. I mean, he clearly didn't believe some of the advice that he was getting. And yet, right. because it was convenient for him publicly to make such claims, he did it anyway, um, You know, which I think kind of even shows another level of intent there that, um, you know, it wasn't just that he was listening to the wrong people. He understood that these people were crazy and was still amplifying what they were saying anyway. 
Right. I mean, and there's a passage where he tells Mike Pence to, you know, your problem is you're too honest. Well, that's the implication is you should be less honest like me because I'm dishonest and that's a better way to be. It's a it's an acknowledgement of, of you know, consciousness of guilt. Right. Yeah. Consciousness that what he was doing was not legitimate. Technical production for the Aaron Rupar show is provided by Studio Americana an audiobook and podcast production company based in Minneapolis, serving clients nationwide. Studio Americana specializes in high-quality recording, editing, and production services. They work with authors and publishers looking to meet the growing demand for audiobook content. Their team of producers and editors ensure the process is easy and efficient. They also assist with equipment, voice coaching services, voice talent for audiobook narration, and professional podcasts. If you're ready to get started, go to studioamericana.com forward slash contact to set up a meeting. Here's what I was thinking to talk about next is, you know, I've been watching a lot of right wing media last night into this morning. Um, you know, You're Republican, the best at it. Well, well. I don't know. If, I don't know if best. I mean, maybe I have the uh, the most tolerance for it or something like that. I don't know if there, it's really a skill set unto itself. But yeah, um, you know, the the talking point that hosts and Republicans were going on Newsmax and Fox News are very much running with, um, including even lawyers like uh, Jonathan Turley has kind of been making claims like this on Fox. Is that I bet. this indictment is basically a form of criminalizing speech because mm -hmm. you know Trump is basically being uh, prosecuted for making statements that may have been false, but he believed them to be true. And so you know what's wrong with that? Can't we make? Don't we have a right to make false claims? I mean, first of all, um, you know Jack Smith. I think, I think it's on page two of the indictment. Uh, specifies that Trump had every right to make false claims. That's not what he is being prosecuted right. for. What he's being prosecuted for, as we've touched upon at the very top of the conversation, is this conspiracy basically to defraud voters. Um, do you have any thoughts on that line of defense? I mean, if that's the best that Republicans can come up with, that doesn't seem super compelling. But I guess, you know, if it's enough to kind of win the political argument or at least keep their voters on side, maybe that's good enough. Um, yeah. But th this gets into something I think also that you've written about in other pieces, you know, in slightly separate contexts for public notice that you've done, where there's kind of a disconnect with a lot of Trump's legal defenses between kind of playing politics with them and using mm -hmm. whether it's court filings or hearings to make political arguments. Um, but these aren't good arguments in a court of law. They don't really carry the day. And so it creates a lot of problems when you try and use these as legal defenses. Are we kind of headed down a similar path here with this January 6th case? Or is this just a political argument? That's really an, an interesting question. And I think the answer is going to be maybe both, right? That part of what Trump does is Trump confuses his political argument, his public relations argument with his legal argument. And that's one of the reasons that he doesn't, he has so much trouble finding counsel is that what he, well, first of all, he's the world's worst client. I mean, people joke that he's he's not going to pay you. And I think that perhaps in the past that was true, but now he has infinity pack dollars. So he pays his lawyers through the pact. And in fact, he pays them a lot. Um, he, like for instance, Chris Kyes, who represents him in Florida, in the Florida indictment, he was a, he was a partner at a, um, a law firm called Hogan and Lovells. It's a it's a large, very nice, you know, white shoe law firm. And he was paid three million dollars to leave Hogan and Lovells because the law firms don't want the reputational risk of having Trump as a client, uh, because that is a tremendous reputational risk. So look, the lawyers are getting paid. That's not the problem. The problem is that Trump not only won't listen to you and will undercut you by going on true social and undercutting your claims that you make in court, but that he he won't listen to you. And, you know, he's 
he's like a pain in the ass. He's he's a, he's a bit of a nut. So the problem, and, and he wants you to make these PR arguments as legal arguments. So you've seen, for instance, the lawyers that are representing him here are Todd Blanche, who was a, you know, a white collar defender um, in, in DC. He's, he's a serious guy. He's a serious lawyer. And John Laura, well, John Laura was on TV last night and Todd Blanche was not on TV as far as I can tell and hasn't done TV. So Trump seems to have kind of different kinds of lawyers for different jobs. We've all seen Alina Haba on TV. Alina Haba talks on TV. Alina Haba was theoretically his lawyer in the E. Jean Carroll civil civil case. She didn't say one word in court because that's, you know, she's, she's, if she's, if you want to be dispatched, if you want a lawyer to make a crazy argument, she's the one to do it. You want a lawyer to go on TV and say crazy shit. She's the one to do it, which Mm. is why she's now his legal spokesperson and she's getting paid directly by the PAC. She's theoretically not representing him, although other lawyers haven't haven't fully taken over in the cases where she represents. Those are civil cases. Mm -hmm. So the answer to your question is, is he going to use these kind of PR defenses or is he going to use real defenses? And I think he's going to use these PR defenses on television. I expect he'll use kind of some hybrid form of the real defenses. For instance, in the Eileen Cannon cases last year, when he was trying to fight the warrant, that was kind of a hybrid. They did make some sort of, that was Jim Trustee and John Rowley. They don't Mm -hmm. represent him on that case anymore. They made arguments that were kind of silly arguments. They made the witch hunt. They talked about Russia, Russia, Russia in their court filings. Um, And you know, it worked because it was Judge Cannon or it worked for a minute until the 11th Circuit said, cut that out. I do not. That's that's absolutely not going to work see, at all. And it's certainly not going to work in front of Judge Tanya Chutkin. So mm-hmm. I, I expect that that John Lauro will make these silly arguments on television. And I expect in court they will make serious arguments because, you know, this is serious. Yeah. You can go to jail for this stuff. Yeah. Well, and, and that's one of the kind of. um baffling things to me. I mean, I feel like, you know, throughout the entire Trump presidency for lay people like me, you know, I'm a journalist who covers politics, essentially. Um, you had to take kind of a crash course in mm-hmm. the law. You know, it was like you were yes. it was like going to like a, you know, taking a law school class every couple months when there'd be some new legal controversy that you'd have to, you know, yeah. get up to speed on. One of the things I didn't fully understand until quite recently with this latest batch of legal troubles that Trump has is that these federal judges are essentially randomly assigned to these mm-hmm. cases. There's really no particular rhyme or reason. And and so on two separate occasions in Florida, Trump has randomly drawn Cannon, Eileen Cannon, mm-hmm. who was one of his appointees. And there was some questions even when she was nominated as to whether she was qualified um, there's an, a lot like her resume is pretty thin and there have been right. some indications that she's willing to do Trump's bidding, maybe more than a normal judge would. Maybe more than some. Yeah. A lot of indications. Yes. Ample. Yeah. Although the New York Times recently had a piece kind of giving her credit for um, playing it by the book, you know, in some of the more recent decisions she's had to make that they got some criticism for. So I'm not sure how justified it was to kind of take that, you know, take that framing of things. But um mm-hmm. In this particular case, he drew an Obama uh, Obama nominated judge who has been very tough on some of the January 6th defendants previously. Yeah. And so and this has been looks, tough on Trump. Yes. And so this looks much worse for him uh, than the case in Florida does this. Yes, substantially. And I mean, I, let's let's make this subtext text. He is his 
his behavior is most appalling when he's dealing with black women, right? He's made mm. the most racist statements about Fonnie Willis, the prosecutor in Georgia, about uh, Letitia James, the New York attorney general. He's, he's you know, he, he he basically calls her a racial slur on Truth Social all the time. I think it's like a couple of syllables off. It's very clear what he means. Mm. And so I expect him to behave equally badly with Tanya Chutkin, an African-American female judge. I I anticipate this is going to be tremendously ugly. Um, I mean, it was always going to be ugly. It would have been ugly if he'd gotten one of his own appointees, uh, of which most of them are on the D.C. circuit or on the U.S. District Court in D.C. are are, are white men, although there's a couple of women in there. Um, but he uh, he's going to be gross. It's going to be gross. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that came up as I was reading through the indictment is that obviously the facts alleged in it are devastating for Trump in terms of mm-hmm. just the timeline and like the, you know, the statements that he made that he knew were false. He was told repeatedly they were false. Um, but I don't really have a good sense because these charges, I mean, it's not like you're being charged with robbing a bank where there's, you know, footage of it. It's cut and dry. You're guilty kind of thing. Right. I don't really know what it would look like to prove some of these charges because they're kind of arcane charges or they're not ones that. Um, we typically think of in in criminal situations. So I guess my question for you is, are there plausible legal defenses out there for Trump? Um, You know, you mentioned Lauro, who's one of, I guess, the new attorneys that's working with Trump. Mm -hmm. He was on CNN last night, basically asserting that there's nothing wrong with fake fake elector schemes, that it's, you know, totally kosher, which didn't seem to me like a very strong argument. Although, again, I'm not steeped in the law like you are. But, yeah. you know, I, I don't want you to, you know, to get too speculative here, but are, are there defenses that would be available to Trump or his lawyers that could actually carry some water in a, in a court of law? I'm going to give you their bad defenses. Right. Like, so let's let's talk. Let's let's circle back to that First Amendment defense. And and I think you're right that the, the indictment discusses the indictment says it's it's covers conduct between November 14th, 2020 and January 20th, 2021. Right. So what he's what Trump is. Sorry. What the prosecutor is saying, what Jack Smith is saying, is that the things that Trump did in the week or, you know, week and a half after the election were completely fine. They were totally fine. They were an an absolutely protected exercise of his First Amendment rights. He was entitled to, you know, ask for recounts. He was entitled to file lawsuits. He was entitled to do a lot of things. What he was not entitled to do was assemble slates of fake electors. He was not entitled to ask you know, try and encourage Mike Pence to violate the Electoral Count Act and the Constitution and overturn the election by basically fiat. Those things are not protected First Amendment activities. Those were part of a conspiracy to suppress millions and millions of votes. And so that's not protected First Amendment activity. So, right, I I know exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about this clip with John Laro last night where he said, well, he just asked for a little bit of a delay. He was just Mm -hmm. trying to verify that the votes were right. Well, that's that's an unavailing argument because a delay would be... actual violation of the Electoral Count Act. The Electoral Count Act says the votes are going to get tabulated, you know, the president or the vice president in his role as president of the Senate will open the envelopes on January 6th. And, you know, everybody's going to vote on these, you know, everybody's going to certify the election. The House will certify, the Senate will certify, and that will be the the result of this election. So asking him, yes, he just used words. You have a First Amendment right to like use your words. You don't have a First Amendment right to say, hey, Vice President Pence, be less honest and violate the Constitution 
and just toss out electoral votes unilaterally, which is what he wanted to do. And he was told by all of the lawyers around him, this is not legal. The only lawyers who were saying it was legal were Sidney Powell, John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani. And I guess Jenna Ellis, um, who is nobody's idea of a constitutional Mm. lawyer. Right. She's I mean. God bless, but she she did get fired from being a traffic court lawyer. She was a traffic <laughs> court public defender and she got fired for being incompetent. Yeah. So, you know, she has managed to reshape herself as a constitutional law expert. And God bless, it's America, you know, live your best self. But that doesn't make her somebody who would be more of an authority on the law than Pat Philbin, the White House counsel, or Jeff Rosen, or Rich Donahue, or any of the other lawyers who were saying, yeah, totally cool. Totally. Legal. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, the, when you when you say that, that actually kind of caused something to click in my mind, because, you know, one of the the passages from the indictment that really jumped out to me, just when you think through what that evening was like on January 6th, is this passage right towards the end where I believe it was Eastman, who was still badgering uh, some of Pence's lawyers, mm-hmm. even like as the Capitol was basically smoldering. They're trying to clear people out of there. You know, it's unclear when when Congress is going to be able to reconvene to certify the election. And here's Eastman still badgering, you know, an attorney who is working with Pence. Yes. Mm -hmm. Basically saying, you know, maybe think one more time about delaying this, please. You know, it's still putting on kind of like a last pressure campaign. And then one of the things that Eastman said was, we just need to delay this ideally until tomorrow at some point. And I guess maybe the idea there was just that if it went into January 7th without the election being certified, then even just the delay itself could be cited as an irregularity that would provide a pretext to kind of throw the whole thing back to the states and try and get the Republican legislatures involved to basically help overturn the result. Was that, is that kind of what you infer from that passage of the indictment as well? Yes, I think that's exactly right. And and that is a famous email that there was this email exchange between Greg Jacob, who was Mike Pence's, uh, I think, chief top aide. Mark Short was the chief of staff and Greg Greg Jacob was, I guess, his top advisor. Um, And they they feature prominently. They were they were some of the ones that tried to assert executive privilege. And and Judge Beryl Howell in the U.S. District Court in D.C. said that it was going to be an unavailing. And they, you know, they had to testify. So during the siege of the Capitol, Eastman was still trying to push it off. And he sent this famous email that you're talking about to Greg Jacob, where he said, I implore you to ask your boss to, you know, now that we've had this one minor violation of the Electoral (laughs) Count Act, because it was already stopped, why don't you just violate a wee tiny smidge more, and then we can try and push it to tomorrow. And I think their plan was look, you cover a bunch of crazy people. So you've seen all of these people say like, well, you know, the flag doesn't have a fringe and is an admiralty flag. And, you know, this court isn't real. I think what they were trying to do was A, to push it back to the states and B, if that didn't work to say, well, it wasn't certified on January 6th. So the certification doesn't count and Donald Trump can stay president forever or some, you know, whatever crazy shit that they wanted to play that they wanted to run. But you are right. What they wanted to do, they they acknowledged in that email. And there are other emails where they acknowledge that what they're asking to do is a wee tiny smidge of a violation of the law. Right. So another thing that Laro said on TV last night was he talked about, well, this was totally fine. And they they talk about the 1960 precedent from the Hawaii mm. election or, or the the presidential election in Hawaii, where there was it was very clear that there was a tabulation error that showed it was it was Hawaii's first election as a state. Only mm-hmm. 200,000 people voted uh, in the entire you know state. And there was it was very clear that although Kennedy had won, it was there was like a tabulation error that showed that Nixon had won. And they had to do a recount of the whole state. And it was like 
pre-machines, you know, it was in a place that wasn't used to doing it. It took a very long time. So in that situation where it was clear that it was going to flip, there were two sets of electors sworn in basically by the secretary of state. Um, I don't I don't remember the exact procedure, but that the when they sent the original certification showing that Nixon had won, and then when it became clear in January, the first few days of January, that the recount showed that Kennedy was the winner, they sent the pre the the governor of the state sent a new certification to D.C. and it was fine. It was there in time for January sixth. From this. The Republicans, people like Eastman, kind of make a tremendously disingenuous argument that the thing that they did was totally covered by the Hawaii precedent. Mm. That's not yeah. what they did. First of all, they, they told lies to some of these electors. Some of these electors were told, this is only you're only doing this provisionally. We're not going to send these right. electoral certificates in if we're only going to send them in if the the legislature approves them or if the court mm -hmm. challenges overturn them. You're, you're only signing these certificates provisionally. I believe that's what they told the New Mexico electors. Um, yeah. Second, they did this kind of secretly, which is pretty well indicates that they knew they were doing something they weren't supposed to do. So like in in Georgia, I think it, no, it was in Michigan. They tried to sneak into the Capitol and right. sleep in the Capitol at night because <laughs> the, the 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 Michigan law says that you have to it, to be a valid electoral certificate. It has to be done in the Capitol. Mm -hmm. um, and then they didn't get to do that. But but they swore themselves in anyway and signed a thing that said, like, we did this in the Capitol and this is totally kosher. And then they sent sent it in saying we're the duly elected um, you know, electors from the state of Michigan in Georgia. So we talked about Ken Cheesebro was, I think, number five, co-conspirator yep. number five. And he drafted multiple memos where he said, here are some of the problems with what we're doing that's going to make it really a little wobbly. Like, for instance, in Georgia, in Georgia law requires that if you have to substitute any elector, um, if elector gets sick or dies or drops out or whatever, you have to get the governor's sign off. He flagged mm -hmm. this in one of his early memos. He had multiple memos in November and December. And he said, make sure that all of the Republican electors who were on the original ballot are willing to go along with this scheme because otherwise they don't count. It's not it's not kosher. And they they wouldn't do it. Four of the 16 electors dropped out, including Senator John e. Isaacson's son, said, like, I'm not signing a fake electoral certificate. That's fraud. Um, mm. And they just, you know, kind of blessed them anyway, found four replacements and sent the certificates in as if they were legitimate. They were not legitimate. So yeah. the the analogy to Hawaii is really inept. And I think it's 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 very disingenuous. And I think they basically know that. Yeah. And, and there's kind of a. a similarity with the um in the documents context with the Clinton Sox case where Trump and his team have kind of seized upon this you know sort of weird case involving Clinton mm -hmm. doing interviews with the reporter that were on tape in his socks drawer as somehow green lighting you know being a precedent that green lights egregious mishandling of classified documents in a completely different context that had to do with sensitive military secrets but again you know it's one of those things where having the appearance of an argument is enough for them, it feels like, you know, because on Newsmax or Fox, that works. Mm -hmm. um, these won't necessarily work in a court of law or for well-informed people won't be persuaded by it, but it's like they just, they like having kind of the appearance of having a defense, even if it isn't, uh, you know, a legitimate one. And, and the other thing I wanted to flag on the fake elector scheme, you know, I thought that was something that I, I didn't fully understand until reading this indictment was how it seemed like it kind of gained momentum from being this idea with the fake electors where, you know, if the Republican legislatures got involved in trying to hold up the certification of the election, it seemed like initially the idea was that, that these fake electors would be kind of like 
an option, you know, it was kind of uh, contingent, I guess I would say, where it was like, if the Republican legislatures got involved, then we have this other slate of electors mm-hmm. ready to go. But as desperation mounted December into January, it became almost a plan unto itself, where now it was Pence who was going to have to get involved. Um, you know, we talked about this earlier, the different stages of the plan that the indictment takes through. But, you know, it began as kind of this conditional plan kind of turned into the plan at the end. And I'm not sure if that was, you know, probably primarily reflection of the desperation that Trump was feeling heading into January 6th to have some way of overturning the election, even though the scheme to get the Republican legislatures involved never really came to fruition because to their credit, you know, some of the, the speakers and prominent Republicans in these states, like in Arizona, didn't want anything yep. to do with it. Yeah, I totally agree. I think you're right. I think that there was a, an evolving plan to reflect the facts on the ground, right? I think that they filed all of these lawsuits and thought, well, we can get somebody to, you know, we'll get some court to intervene. And they were, you know, they failed because none of their claims had any relationship to reality. There was not massive fraud on the ground. Um, and so they they did not get a court to intervene as they intended to do. And so then the plan had to evolve, right? So then they said, okay, well, the court's not going to throw it back to us. Maybe we can get the state legislatures to do it, which is this, this, so that was one of the conflicts in Georgia, right? That's one of the reasons that Trump turned so decisively against Brian Kemp, because Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, a Republican, said, I'm not going to call the legislature back into session so that it can kind of pretend that there's fraud and claw back the legislators. That's that's crazy. And Trump ref- you know, got really mad at him and, and refused <laughs> yeah. to do it because Trump was so mad that he didn't win Georgia. Um, and, and, and that was one of the reasons he was mad at Doug Ducey, the governor of Arizona. And you know, he's he he campaigned against Kemp really right. heavily, campaigned heavily against Raffensperger and both of both of them won in Georgia. I think one of the results of this, you know, we were a little far afield, is that he kept Doug Ducey out of the, you know, out of any of the races in the he kept Doug Ducey out of the Senate race, right? Mm-hmm. Which is in Arizona. Oh. And yeah. Mark Burnovich, who was the attorney general and a very prominent politician, when Trump turned against him, you know, he kept Brnovich out of the gubernatorial race. Well, then you've got yep. Carrie Lake and you've got Blake Masters who mm-hmm. win those things. And, and you know, now you have That's a clean sweep for Democrats in in Arizona. Yep. But but back to your question. Yes, it was very clearly an evolving plan. First, they thought we'll have these electors just in case the courts, you know, or the the courts will help us and then we'll have the electors. And then they thought Mm -hmm. the legislatures will help us and then we'll have the electors. And then the legislatures like in Arizona, Rusty Bowers, as you said, who was the um, the head of of the I think he was the head of the state Senate. He was the one who Mm -hmm. testified in the January 6th committee hearing. He got a relentless pressure campaign from both Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump. And he said, I'm not going to call the state you know, legislature back into session and steal your steal Joe Biden's electors. I'm just not going to do it. And he's he's currently out of office. And he he did also suffer a relentless um, harassment campaign. There were protesters outside his house. I think his daughter was quite sick. And I believe that she eventually died with cancer, even as there were protesters outside, you know, his house calling him all kinds of horrible names. Um, so but when the legislatures refused to do it, that is when you get to the Pence theory. And there were multiple theories of Pence doing it. First, there was Pence um, was going to unilaterally say, well, these aren't well, they had three theories. The first was that Pence would reject the Biden electors from the swing states and kind of bless these fake electors. Right. And so you saw, for instance, Ron Johnson was trying very hard to get the Wisconsin and I think Michigan electoral um, certificates to Pence because for some reason they weren't there. I don't know. Um, And and Pence's people, to their credit, said, you know, stay the hell away from him. Don't hand him that. (laughs) Right. Which is in the indictment. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. And and I mean, it was previously reported, but I guess it's really nice to have it all here because maybe not everybody read the whole January 6th report. Yeah. But so there was the, the, the first they wanted Pence to recognize the fake electors. And then um, they wanted Pence to kind of say, well, there isn't an answer and throw it to the House of Representatives where they had this whole plan where because the Republicans, there were more state delegations that were Republicans, I think it was one vote per state delegation, then then the Republicans in the House would throw it to Trump. And then if not, if Pence refused to do that, then they wanted him to call this pause that John Laro said last night, you know, like, well, we were just, you know, we wanted just there to be an investigation of all of these bogus claims of electoral fraud. Well, the fraud claims have been investigated. That's another kind of GOP MAGA canard Mm -hmm. that, well, no court, all the courts just rejected us on standing and no courts, you know, looked at our fraudulent or our claims of fraud. This is is utter nonsense. And look, Carrie Lake is still, you know, litigating all of that nonsense in Arizona and and probably will be until the heat death of the sun. But um, even though she keeps getting sanctioned. But but my point is that you're right. It was an evolving plan with these electoral certificates. And and they just got more and more illegal as they went along because they got more desperate. Yeah. Well, then and Laura, Laura, Laura also told Caitlin Collins last night that they're going to use uh, subpoena power now to investigate some of these claims again. So I guess, you know, we just keep going in circles here where even though they've been investigated repeatedly and um, there's been no evidence of any, um, you know, fraud that would have changed the outcome it seems like they're planning to kind of rerun that and you know let's see what happens this time i suppose right i mean i don't know how much patience judge tanya chetkin is going to have although i guess it being such a high profile case maybe she'll want to give him more room to you know to subpoena but look who the hell is he going to subpoena right like rusty bowers the head of the who, right. there's nobody he's going to subpoena who is any who's going to prove his election fraud claims because they're bogus and in fact a lot of those legislatures were controlled by Republicans. And they told him, you know, like, for instance, the Michigan legislature Mm -hmm. um, told him it was all Republican officials. And they said, you know, this is crazy. There is nothing to your claims. You just lost Michigan. Mm -hmm. And he lost Michigan by a lot. Like it was like 150,000 votes. I mean, it was not a close call. Yeah. Well, and yeah, it, it mentions that in the indictment as well with New Mexico, which kind of got dragged into the to this scheme kind of bizarrely, because the indictment as kind of an aside mentions that, it was like 10% that he lost yeah. New Mexico. It, you know, it wasn't even, it was only like 10,000 votes because it's a relatively small state, but mm-hmm. um, it, it was not at all and close. Arizona and Arizona as well. And it was kind of an afterthought that New Mexico became involved in, in this scheme. But I guess maybe the idea was that they needed a certain number. They kind of shot high with the number of states involved, maybe in case a couple of them didn't pan out that they would still have the electoral votes they needed to, to flip the result. But um, one quick last thing, and then I, I have a kind of an exit question for you too here. But um, one thing that I thought was interesting from the indictment is the couple appearances that Ron McDaniel makes. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems as though from one of the appearances um, that she makes the indictment that she was kind of running point on this yeah. fake elector scheme where after the the fake electors had met in these you know various states, she was one who sent the email to Trump basically saying like, hey, you know, kind of updating him all these these fake slates met and voted. Mm-hmm. Um, does that, you know, is there any legal exposure for her in that? Or, um, you know, how it seems to me like there would be, but maybe, you know, maybe I'm misunderstanding things. I mean, would there be, you know, could there be potential? I suppose there could. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know exactly what yeah. she did. Nobody has really eyes on it. I, I don't think that they're going to charge her. Um, I, I think that most of the people who were sort of cooperative 
are not getting charged, right? Like you, you can see that Mark Meadows, who was only kind of marginally cooperative or back and forth waffled, let's say, with the January 6th committee. Um, he, you know, he's not an, a co- he's not listed as a co-conspirator. Rona Romney, Romney McDaniel is not listed as a co-conspirator. I'll, you know, the White House counsel and other lawyers in, in Trump's orbit who told him no are not listed as a co-conspirator. Only the people who, you know, not only kind of played a leading role, but who were really obstreperous with the investigators are listed as co-conspirators. So I, I think she probably, you know, she's not she's not an idiot. Uh, I think she probably tried very hard to play it both in during while it was going on. I think she tried very hard to kind of play it really, you know, stay out of legal jeopardy. And hmm. and with these investigators, I don't think she's she's not an idiot. She, she was trying not to go to jail. And I think she's going to succeed. OK, well, that's good to know. Um because she, yeah, she's she's back on Fox News and Newsmax, uh, supporting Trump one hundred percent. You know, as mm-hmm. Brian Kemp has, you know, who we mentioned earlier, um, he's supporting Trump. So it is, you know, it is kind so of so is Mike um, Pence, right? I mean, right, well, yeah. sort of, sort yes. of. He did have a thread last night that was probably the most outspoken I've seen him, you know, uh-huh. against Trump, kind of highlighting things from the indictment. It's, you know, it's a little too late at this point. I don't think he. Last I saw, he had still not qualified for the debate later this wow. month, which um, it seems pretty clear Trump will not participate in. Although I wonder, um, you know, if this indictment will affect his political standing at all. It seems, you know, past his precedent, if anything, it will uh, give him a boost in the primary polling, which would give mm-hmm. him less incentive to debate. So I guess stay tuned for that. But, you know, speaking of kind of timelines from here, um, you know, with the documents case, and this was actually the development that I think Eileen Cannon was getting some credit for, was that the Trump lawyers had requested the trial be delayed past the 2024 election. She mm-hmm. said, no, um, it's scheduled for next May, which is actually kind of like right in the middle of things, right before, before the RNC. Now, I understand there are also ways in which she could still delay things, even though the trial has been scheduled. So maybe it's a little premature to give her credit for that. But you know, now in the January 6th case, we have a judge who is much more fair, or at least you know, in, in some context, I guess, tough on January 6th defendants. Um, I'm assuming that the Trump lawyers will make kind of a similar play here and ask for maximum delay. Um, how do you see that playing out? Um, obviously, that's a little speculative at this point. But what do you think the odds are that we see a trial for this before the 2024 election? I think the odds that we see any trials, maybe maybe the state trials, but any of these federal trials before the 2024 election is somewhere approaching zero. Hmm. Um, I, I know that's not what anybody wants to hear. But for so the the Florida case, which is scheduled for May, first of all, they've added another defendant, which is probably going to push it off just a little bit. Um, but the, that that involves all of these classified documents. And so that implicates what's known as SEPA, the Classified Information Protection Act, Procedures Act, the Classified Information Procedures Act, right? And those are basically immediately appealable determinations as to how to, um, classified documents are going to be treated. Trump has already made it clear that he's going to be as obstreperous as possible about that. So you can you can bet that that's going to go back and forth to the 11th Circuit. There, there is just no way. That it's, it's not going to happen. Um, and in this case, first of all, U.S. District Court in D.C. is not a rocket docket. It's it's kind of the opposite of a rocket docket. So Florida has a really speedy trial. I think it's like 70 days in Florida. Now, she pushed it off um, by a lot to, to kind of accommodate this case, and it's going to get moved again. But in U.S. District Court in D.C., it's not like that. Tri- trials routinely are scheduled multiple years out because of things like 
as here, you know, you're going to waive your speedy trial requirement. And there's going to be how many witnesses in this case? And probably there's going to be a superseding indictment as, you know, either he flips people or doesn't flip people and and adds charges or adds defendants, he being Jack Smith. Mm -hmm. So I, I just I think. I really don't think that we ought to hang our political hopes on this. I don't think this yeah. one is about the election. I think this one is about democracy, right? You mm. you cannot have a coup attempt that goes unpunished. We have to do this not because of the election. We have to do this because that's what democracy requires. Mm -hmm. But isn't there, on the flip side, a risk, and maybe this is unavoidable, that you know, if Trump and you know, take the polls for what they're worth at this point. But, you know, there was a New York Times poll, I think, yesterday that had it exactly tied with Biden, 43, 43, Trump and Biden. Um, doesn't that kind of set up a risk where if Trump wins, he can basically make these cases go away? Uh, maybe that's naive on my part, but I would assume that since he basically controls the DOJ, um, if he's president, that, you know, even if it's not a self-pardon, he would have means to make these cases disappear. Is that a hundred percent right? That's 100 percent right. And I agree with you. It would have been advantageous for these cases to have been brought a year ago. I do. I agree. Um, I wish that they had. I, I think that is, you know, Trump makes a lot of complaints. Um, and and when he complains, as he complains repeatedly, you know, on social media or whatever, that these cases should have been brought two and a half years ago. There's a kernel of truth to that. <laughs> Right. That they should. He said, I mean, he says, well, now they're doing it in the middle of the election is interference. This is not the middle of the election. This is 2023. The election is more than a year away. That's ridiculous. Um, and he himself had quite a bit to do with this. You know, he he was he obstructed the January 6th committee proceeding. He refused to cooperate. He did a lot of things to to encourage the witnesses in this case to not cooperate, which caused delay, because then you had to, as I said, take it to, you know, the U.S. District Court, the, the chief judge who was at the time, Judge Beryl Howell in D.C., to get her to make rulings. And then a lot those rulings were often ap appealed to the D.C. Circuit. So part of the reason that it's happening now is that Trump delayed it. But part of the reason that it's happening now is that it didn't there wasn't the political will at the Justice Department to do this until they were shamed by the January 6th committee. So mm. all credit to, you know, Liz Cheney and Benny Thompson, because I do think they lit a fire under the DOJ. I, I wish that this investigation had started on, you know, January 7th, 2021, and it would have already gone to trial, but it didn't. And here we are. So the political reality and the legal reality, once again, don't mesh. Yep. Well, Liz, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Great insight. And uh, I look forward to working with you more as we, uh, you know, as Trump's legal problems, I don't know if, well, they will mount because there's still the Georgia case out there too. Um, and it sounds like mm -hmm. indictments could be coming soon there, but highly recommend Absolutely. that people check out opening arguments. If you liked our conversation today, uh, opening arguments drops at least like four times a week these Constantly. days. And uh, yep. it, it we goes deeper than we did today. Last so. night. There you go. Thanks guys. Well, thanks again, Liz. Really appreciate it. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. New episodes of the Aaron Rupar Show drop every Thursday. Please like the show uh, on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your circle. Thank you for tuning in.